Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're up to episode 20. It's good to be back with you. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. I don't know Wait, about you. Liam, it looks like we're out of our teens. We've gone from we're... our teens to our <laughs> 20s. We're, we're close to, if we were American, we could be able to buy some drinks soon. Does we're this mean we have to grow up. up and get a job? Yeah. Oh, no. I think so. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, it feels like it's Do been... we get presents when we turn 21? Uh, that's a well. We could get each, each other some presents, I guess. I guess. Uh, we have to. We have to scull a yard glass of oh, um, legislation. <laughs> I think we do that's that ter- anyway. That, that's a terrifying thought. Can't be good for your health. Um, we will. We'll kick off as we always do with the news list. It's been a little less crazy this week in terms of ongoing shenanigans with um, the early childhood reforms, but there's probably still a little bit to get through. So um, we'll we'll kick things off. I think Leanne, I think you're going to bring us the first piece about some vocational education changes. What's been happening there? Well, these ones. It's more a continuation of a, a sad story, I suppose, and I think that this would. I don't know whether we've talked rorts this year, but this is more rorts of the system. And uh, it looks like 3,000 3, students are at risk of losing their uh, qualifications that they've been studying for or not actually achieving those as a result of um, some providers that have gone belly up and have had their funding taken away. And I guess this is more of the story around vocational education, um, which has... The good thing about this is that there are a lot of things being uncovered and that um, ASQA is actually identifying uh, organisations that need to have their their registration cancelled or suspended or whatever. But the problem is that it does leave students out on a limb and that they won't complete their their qualifications or their certifications and that is such a sad thing. Um, So... Yeah, it's actually more of a continuation of that story. But I think it does highlight some of the important issues around putting something out to market and not working out all of the problems that will be there. So we've still got a lot of providers that are offering laptops and iPads and all sorts of stuff to get people enrolled with no um, prospect of those people ever finishing that qualification. So... Yeah, so it, it's a it's a tough one. Good news is though that they're going to reinvest in TAFE. That's what I've heard. <laughs> I think we've heard that one before. Do you mind we? if we don't hold our breath on that one? <laughs> mm, exactly. Yeah. Actually, it, it was interesting to see that the the completion rates for online um, courses, which is what government prefers to have because they see it as being cheaper, is six percent completion rate. Ooh, six percent. Yeah. Really, that's all you need in an education system, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, and and the the goal is um, in New South Wales is to have sixty five percent completion rate. So, I I think it's got a long way to go. Yeah, about ninety four percent. Yeah, and the and the the it's interesting reading when you see all of the cancellations and suspensions. There were there were one hundred and seven notices last year but there's been some um, interesting cancellations of registration like Sunshine 
College, which I thought might have been um, from the castle. I don't know whether you remember his daughter got her qualifications. <laughs> and also, also June Daly Watkins has had hers cancelled as well. So there's no more uh, poise coming from uh, June Daly Watkins. Oh, but I thought that was such a good thing to spend my taxpayer dro- dollars on. <laughs> I want all young women to be poised. <laughs> etiquette, etiquette. Is this how they I create the women? Is able it... to do that thing where they put put books on their heads and walk straight with them? Is this where the uh, women yes. of calibre come from? Yes, and the will- mm. women of calibre are closely related to the right kind of families. Exactly, that the coalition wants the jobs for families package for. Indeed, indeed. Um, well, speaking of the Jobs for Families package, so there hasn't been a... So we obviously, over the last two weeks, we've we've covered a fair bit of news as this has morphed and changed. Um, it's currently, as we've said before, sitting in another committee and will be... I'll remind everyone now, we'll remind everyone again, uh, it's very important that if you can, you get in a submission to that inquiry. Um, basically, the, the negotiations seem to still be continuing behind the scenes and primarily with uh, Nick Xenophon, the Nick Xenophon team. So Nick and his... Uh, his um, three senators, uh, they seem fairly confident still that they might be able to convince him and there might have to be some uncoupling of um, the legislation from all the various things that have been proposed. And I think it's uh, it's really interesting. This is it, it, It's strange sort of watching this bill being negotiated as, as we go along. Um, and I think the hope is that we re- that there needs to be a lot of work with the sort of the crossbenchers who will hold the power here to to make sure that there's a priority around um, children because it just it still just seems to be what you know measure of tax cut happens here and is then recouped here they just children are still just completely missing from this discussion which makes me a bit sad is, uh, can I ask is why the, would that make the... you sad Liam like, what <laughs> the children got to do with it no. sorry I completely completely thought of something else when you were talking about that Liam but What's happened with the three billion? Is it now down to one point five billion? Did I miss one point five? Something no, we somewhere. Got, we got down to point to um, nine hundred. Point nine of a billion. What's uh, that? Nine hundred million. I know. I, th- I I had a feeling you you did, Lisa, didn't you have a you you had followed this better. The, the detail of this is now. I'm going to be completely honest. I'm you know a, a policy and politics nerd. I, th- this has almost gotten away from me. I have a feeling. Didn't they just say they had just determined that it could be done that they could be done for this? Didn't they say that the initial estimate was was wrong? No. The problem is is that there just isn't as many families or as many people claiming childcare benefit as what they had estimated. Yeah. So they kind Does of it, did a yeah. bit of a reshuffling. It's an estimate issue, not necessarily a specific. Yeah. yeah. But w- what that meant was that they didn't need to make as many savings as what they thought they they would. So they didn't need to hit poor welfare recipients over the head to pay for the jobs for families package. But they did anyway. So that's where, no, but that's when they said... We'll bring in. We'll spend what's. We'll spend the leftover change in our pockets on the NDIS, and if you don't pass this, then we'll shoot everyone that has a disability or something like that. But isn't it interesting after this many years that they're not sure exactly how much something's going to cost? I find that. I mean, I know it's a little bit of a moving feast with, in terms of how many people are accessing childcare, but how does I mean, how does every early childhood setting do its budget? You know, and it's a requirement, and yet we can't get 
a proper estimate, well, not even a close estimate to what it, what it's going to cost. But that's I, it. The I system, find that extraordinary. The system's so complicated, there's no way to do it. And this, this is actually, this, this should be reiterated because we should remember that most of the advocacy from the large, you know, the, 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 the big advocacy, advocacy coming from the sector has been kind of, yes, we wish they'd fix some of the package, but at least it's an extra $3 billion in the sector. So that's no longer the case. So that argument was, was always shaky to begin with. And I, I actually remember you, Lisa, ages ago saying that number's made up or at least is, is incredibly yeah. shaky. That if, if that's the primary peop- reason people are going, and I disagree with the view, but I, I, I respect where it's coming from, is saying, look, at least it's an injection of funding into the sector. It's now down to you know 1.5 by some measures or even 0.9. No, n- it's 0.9. Then, yeah. that, then that argument just becomes... I, I never liked that argument but, to begin with, and now it's don't... more ridiculous. But, Liam, that's the way politics goes. Everyone thinks it's a $3 million injection into... $3 billion. In, it's $3 billion injection into the sector. They've said it enough. They've done the propaganda enough that everyone thinks that. Yeah. What's going to happen when these when families who be, have believed, or even when Nick Xenophon, who believes that the childcare package is essentially kind of okay, it's the, the good part of the omnibus package, What's going to happen when families realise for most of them it'll mean only $30 a week extra? Which it has always only been, hasn't it? I know. It has always only been that. So who knows that figure as much as they know $3 into childcare? And the other thing that's always gotten me about it is that, yes, $3 increase into childcare, or maybe not quite $3 but that would have happened anyway. Because yeah. that's what happens. That's what's been happening with CCB and CCR. It's just kept expanding. The the cost of it has kept going. So it's, it's not a, like three billion new money. It's just shuffling the deck chairs. <laughs> money is yeah. taken from and money and can, is given to others. That's right. And can I just say, I did mean to mention it in the first news article. Is that the public debt blowout is three billion dollars on the rorts. <laughs> <laughs> for the vocational we'd have enough to fund this. Okay, <laughs> my um, the article I'm going to talk about um, is again about the Jobs for Families package and the cost of childcare by itself. It's written by Stephanie Peatling. Now, Stephanie Peatling is a Canberra journalist from a political um, bureau of Facebook. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> She also, I'm just looking at the account and it's got a big Facebook share on it, so it jumped up at me, from Fairfax. She's one of the few journalists that I actually have alerts on for Twitter so that when she says something, I get it straight to my phone, the same way as I do when Liam or Leanne says anything as well because I know that you know, they're people that know things that are important. But Stephanie Peatling has also been a really good um, supporter of childcare and supporter of quality childcare. Her children go to community-based services and she's understood the whole um, uh, childcare argument. And later this year, her family will say goodbye to six years of childcare. So, look, I just want to read you, rather than talking about it, I just want to read you two sections of it Then I want to tell you to go away and read the whole article yourself. So towards the beginning, she says, for not much more money than someone who stacks supermarket shelves, 
these people have read to our children, taught them their letters and numbers, wiped their noses and bottoms, kissed their grazed knees, cuddled them when they are sad, praised their achievements, indulged their pas passions, taken them on excursions and loved them. And then later on, towards the end, she says, the changes the Turnbull government desperately wants to get through the Senate are not child-focused either. They're parent-focused and go a long way to making the system more affordable, although not more accessible, for families. They're about reaping the taxation benefits of getting more parents to do more taxable work. They could be about what's best for children and how critical it is that they've received good quality education from a young age, particularly for childcare, from particularly for children from disadvantaged backgrounds, but they're not. And I think that kind of sums it up really, really well. We wanted to start a Stephanie Peatling fan club. <laughs> yeah, I'll be a member. <laughs> yeah, I think you look. She, she, you know, and it's good to see this view in. You know, Stephanie Peatling's a very widely read, you know, writer. She's well known in sort of Fairfax. It's good that she, at, at you know, with her, you know, at her level, is calling out that this is not about children. And it it kind of amazes me that we're still stuck on that point. But she's absolutely right. For sure. Okay, now the next one that I've wanted to talk about is about the other end of the spectrum, corporate childcare. And this is a complex argument. We haven't got the time to go into it here, but basically G8, who is our largest corporate provider of childcare, um, it owns over 500 um, services in Australia and Singapore, um, has gone is selling part of its company or selling shares in its company, doing a, those kind of things that they do on stock exchanges, um, which those shares will be issued to a, a company called China First Capital Group, a Chinese company. Now, simultaneously as they announced that that was happening and their shares then went gangbusters and everyone made more money out of it, their full-year net profit dropped, and it dropped 9% down to $80.3 That's $80.3 you know, largely taxpayers' dollars, I should say. Um, so their, their, their profit dropped, and they've borrowed money from China. And the question you've got to ask is, why are they buying money from China, borrowing money from China? rather than borrowing it from their um, lenders in Australia. And when you look at what they're actually borrowing the money from China for, it's to pay back um, their lenders in Australia. <laughs> so their profit's going down, their revenue's going up. Oh, maybe it's um, maybe that's because of uh, ratio changes in Queensland where most of their services are. But, yeah, generally... It's all it's, a bit suspicious. It's like paying off. It's like paying off one Mastercard with another Mastercard. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and at some stage, what happens when you do that? The banks don't get very happy. And is, didn't that happen to another provider that we saw? You know, isn't that what happened with ABC? Eventually, the bank said, "We want our money back." Mm. Indeed. Well, yeah, and it's interesting that you say that those profits are, are taxpayer dollars. So they're either subsidies that are um, being 
you know, pushed into the into the sector or, or provided to the sector, or they're people paying their fees. So they're definitely taxpayer dollars, that's yeah. for sure. Yep. Okay, and the last article that I wanted to talk about tonight is one, uh, and I, it's, um, you know, uh, it's got a great headline, <laughs> which is um, childcare provider embroiled in new wage theft case. And basically, it's about a childcare provider called Academy for Kids in Melbourne who are up for their second lot of underpaying staff. They've underpaid two workers this time by nearly $13,000 over two years. They'll find $20,000 for doing the same thing for five, for five childcare workers a few years ago, and now they've done it again. So they're a repeat offender. So... I just thought that one was interesting. What did they pay them? Nothing. Did they pay them just nothing? <laughs> yeah, it hard that anyone well, could be underpaid 13000 yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, that's, that's Well, I just, think, uh, yeah, reading the article, yeah. I think a lot of it was just, it seemed like everything they could have got wrong, they did. So there was there was sort of not, you know, not overtime pay, there was not breaks pay, there was all, they, they basically squeezed uh, everything they possibly could out of these people. Which Broke I think, shift allowances. Yes. Yeah. yeah, which and I think... Public but, and this is the so there we, were two. Sorry, sorry after, no, so after there you. Were only, there were only two of them, and they and it was thirteen thousand dollars over two years. I mean, it's it's obscene. It probably would have been quarter of their wage yeah. each year. Yeah. But this keeps happening because I mean we had this discussion about you know private versus not for profit a while ago. Um, but really, the, the given staffing is the biggest cost in a centre. So if people want to make lots of money. This is going to be, this, we're going to keep hearing this because this is what people are going to do. So what's the lesson here for uh, <laughs> everyone? Perhaps join the union? Would Ooh. that be a good idea? Ooh, what a radical idea. You mean the union might be able to help you get your money back if your employer's ripping you off? Oh, that's a radical thought, Leah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you might be advised of what is supposed to be being paid. That would be a good thing. For a start, because unions regularly get people back money that they've that they have been paid, but unfortunately, sometimes people say, "I can't afford to join a union." I reckon you can't afford not to. Oh, that was going to be my my comment as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the last uh, big headline for for us, which I'm going to tackle, is um, the federal government's come out over the last week and uh, said that. More than 140,000 families have um, are not receiving the CCB CCR because of the new no jab no play rules that I think came into effect last year. So this was basically for families that that uh, aren't getting their children vaccinated and don't have an appropriate medical exemption um, aren't eligible for the CCB CCR. I'm a strong actually I, I completely back this this policy and I wish it had happened a long time ago and I wish it would be probably rolled out. Um, far more now. The, the the figures around this are interesting. I'd, 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 it's they've obviously got specific figures about um, who can be cut off. So I think the federal government's probably got relatively accurate figures there. But they've said um, Greg Hunt apparently told the Today program that um, the policy had seen a lift of two hundred thousand more children being vaccinated, which I think it'd be harder to track whether then and whether that's a direct result of that uh, policy. But if 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 so, that's fantastic, fantastic news. There's a few parts of this, though, Liam, that um, I think are challenging around vaccination because you, 
in some ways, I mean, it's hard to know how many how many children would be punished, and I'm saying that they would yeah. be excluded as a result of um, perhaps being in quite disadvantaged communities or who uh, have a, you know, perhaps move around as well. Um, and that, so there's some, some challenges there uh, in terms of those children who are then excluded. And, uh, yeah, I, I, have a, I have some reservations about that. And I've seen some really good public health campaigns just conducted by local areas mm. and by local GPs that has actually made the difference. So, for example, in an area in Sydney, the um, the local GP did a, a full, you know, sort of scope of their area and had employed someone extra to call every family. And by that, in doing that, they were able to get 100% vaccination. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've still got some reservations about this policy. I can kind of see them. I, you know, I'm pro the policy. I can kind of see your reservations. But what I object to is the figures that 140,000 families were cut off from childcare payments because I reckon a, a hell of a lot of those would have been your CCB, CCR being cut because you haven't had um, your children injected. Families go, oh, God, are we behind? Go and get it done, and they get back on. So I think the 140,000 yeah. families cut don't isn't an accurate figure whatsoever. Yeah. So you, do you, are you saying that it's the, the leap between when people were reminded and and then they went and had their went and had their vaccinations yep. at that point? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I am. I I think the policy. I agree. I think it's a it's a good sort of move. But I think that there are some children who. I'm just to be clear but I think I, I think that's all and you will always be able to find sort of specific examples where that's the case but I do remember and I, mm. I, I can't I'm trying to see if I can find a specific article but um, you know Australia's public health system in terms of vaccination is held up globally as one of the best so in terms of the information that's given to parents at birth the ability to you know that it's it's entirely free uh, you know for, for, for children I think we've you know Australia has a very good approach to this stuff and that that although it can always be improved, there's very little excuse, I think, these days. Um, Definitely, but there, are, but there are still outliers. Yeah. And I think that's the, the, I guess that's the point I'm trying to make is that those outliers would be the ones that need it the most yeah. in terms of their, their childcare and in terms of their vaccinations. True. Yep. yep. Good point. All right, and that's our news list for this week. The only other thing I'll quickly add is that um, the Federal Department of Education has recently released their um, their sort of overview of a lot of the data that comes out of the sector. They're always staggeringly behind. They're normally about nine months old, so they've just released uh, the data for the March quarter of 2016. But um, it uh, it has some just interesting information. Just a couple of quick you know sort of headlines for me is that there's now one point uh, almost 1.3 million children accessing some form of early childhood education and care. Um, which is just is just you know, a very that's a lot of children, and a lot of that was there was a very sudden spike when Labor um, lifted the childcare uh, rebate to fifty percent, and that's just sort of steadily increased and continued. So um, it's worth thinking about the, you know, the, the the number of children that are, are affected by these reforms that aren't about children. One point two children involved in the system, and we can't bother to talk about them during the early childhood reforms. But um. We'll we'll link to that to that uh, sort of uh, data snapshot, you know, in our show notes as well. Um, 
We're going to cut away for a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have part two of my uh, chat with Professor Frank Oberclay from the Royal Melbourne Children's Hospital. Um, we really appreciated his time. So um, we'll, be, we'll be coming back after a little bit of music with part two of that chat. We hope you all enjoy it. So stick with and us. And it still makes sense, even if you didn't say, listen to part one, doesn't it? Like... Oh, well, I think as much as anything I say makes sense, particularly anything, <laughs> anything Professor Frank says is fantastic. Frank, Frank, Frank oh. makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can still enjoy it, but if you haven't, I would recommend going back, listening to part one as well as listening to part two. So stick with us. We'll be back in just a minute. So internationally, that that evidence and that research seems to be being listened to. How, you know, from your point of view, um, working in the role you work in, how how do you think Australia is faring in comparison with sort of, you know, whether it's the OECD or just internationally? How are we? Do you think we're we've caught up to the ball on that on that international movement yet? Well, all the advocates would say that it's never enough. (laughs) We're never happy, Frank. We're never happy and we're impatient, but Australia is, is um, certainly not the worst and, and there's some very, very impressive things that Australia has done and some of the states have done. Uh, for example, the Australian Early Developmental Census, which was originally called the ADI, the Australian Early Developmental Index. Uh, no, other, no other country in the world has national data around five-year-olds. So we now have three waves of national data about the health and well-being of young children when they start school, um, mapped to every single community in the country and available in the public domain. Well, you know, that's a huge achievement. Um, you know, when, when I <coughs> share this information overseas, people are disbelieving, you know, they fall off <laughs> their heads. So that's a, a bipartisan commitment to getting good national data, which can be translated into uh, the data in, in neighbourhoods, and that's helped change the national um, dialogue around early childhood. Um, more problematic is then what we do about that, but I'll come back and talk about that in a second. The um, uh, Raising Children Network that you know we co-manage with the Parenting Research Centre, there's been a, a, a huge bipartisan national commitment to that. That's a, a parenting website with about 2,500 um, peer-reviewed resources on that. So no other country in the world has got a, a national government-funded uh, a website like that where all the evidence, all the information there is evidence based. So they're two huge financial commitments. Um, we're seeing, I think every state in Australia has an early, early childhood policy of one kind or another. I think you're right, Victoria is probably a little advanced and I don't say that simply because I live in <laughs> and share the VCC. So we're seeing really good evidence of uh, early childhood policy. The challenge for all of us in trying to translate the research and advocate for young children are sort of complex. Um, one is getting the language right, um, especially for people who um, perhaps didn't attend um, a preschool or childcare themselves or don't want their children to go. There's a re- Our research suggests that there's a real suspicion of science among uh, large segments of the population and especially at a suspicion of government. You, you, we hear terms like nanny states and uh, we hear lots of comment. I get comments if I've had media exposure uh, about the government's wanting to control everything. My kids didn't go to childcare and they're fine. The conservative commentators um, that early childhood 
government investment early childhood is a waste of time, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one challenge uh, about getting the language right, about meeting some of uh, meeting head on in a constructive way some of the lay and often uninformed pushback when we talk about early childhood. Secondly is we don't know exactly what to do, that some of the interventions we talk about are fairly complex um, and the challenge is to frame those in uh, uh, solutions that governments can can resonate with. And some of the, one of the things that the centre tries to do is to take complex constructs and simplify them without making them simple. You know, everybody's looking for the silver bullet. But the third reason uh, is that these are long-term solutions um, uh, and governments don't usually think in long-term. They think in electoral cycles. So if we invested hugely in prevention agendas or early childhood, um, the results wouldn't be seen. We'd see some results early on, but we're really talking about long-term investment. We're talking about uh, investing now and seeing the benefit in five years' time, ten years' time, reduced incarceration rates, etc. And Governments don't like to invest in the long term. And the final reason is that prevention is invisible. There are no photo opportunities. There's nothing you can can touch or feel. It's more attractive for perfectly understandable reasons for politicians to uh, announce things that people can relate to, like a new hospital, a new ward, six more social workers, because these are things that people can understand, uh, sometimes um, there are photo opportunities to politicians, and I don't say this cynically at all. Mm. We can understand that there are different agendas for politicians who need to get re-elected than there are for people like myself. So there's a whole multitude of reasons why this is a challenging area to work in. And I think, you know, sort of picking up on that political theme, and I think, um, and I, look, and I'm making an assumption here, but I would imagine, you know, politics can be can be tricky for researchers and and sort of advocates in that space, because obviously um, you're you're advocating a view which is backed by science, not necessarily by ideology. Or you know, I sort of have the uh, the benefit of being able to just yell at everyone and and uh, and not necessarily making friends. But for you and your organisation, um, obviously having good relationships with um, the government, both the United States and federal level. But um, you know, without choosing sides and without sort of you know picking you know sort of left versus right, what, what would you hope that you know politicians of all parties of all stripes um, would prioritise in this area of children's yeah. development? Well, just before I answer that, colleagues have said that early childhood development is the perfect bipartisan issue. <laughs> Because ideologically, the right side of the politics who uh, regard themselves as good economic managers would invest in early childhood because it makes economic sense. And the left, side, the left side of politics would invest in early childhood because it's the right thing to do for children and families. So it, it really is. It should be a perfect bipartisan issue. Um, and there is bipartisan. In fairness, there is bipartisan commitment and uh, people argue about the subtleties of what to do and how to do it, etc. But I think at a state and federal level, governments of both persuasions to be fair, do understand the importance of early childhood, do understand a prevention agenda, and in many ways have the same challenges as we have in trying to interest the electorate in investing in those areas. Um, so there are some things that governments uh, can do, um, not necessarily in order of importance, but the, the population things, the things that they can do with a stroke of a pen and writing out a cheque are high-quality preschool for all children. 
Um, and so universal access is not the same as universal entitlement. So we would like to see all four-year-olds have at least one year of quality preschool, that is, that is kindergarten. And if you talk to the prep teachers, I think they go by different names in other states, but if you talk to the teachers who see children at the, at the age of five in their first year of formal schooling, they will tell you that they can see pretty quickly those children that have had a preschool year and those that haven't in terms of their readiness for school, in terms of their pre-literacy skills, in terms of their ability to socialise with other kids, take turns, etc., etc. So the single most important thing that we would argue governments should do is fund um, one year of free uh, um, preschool, pre-kindergarten. And as I said, there's a difference between access and entitlement. Entitlement means that every single child just goes there automatically without paying anything. Um, and if they could do two good things, they would add a second year of preschool yeah. and they could start with children who grew up in disadvantaged environments who don't have the exposure to the sort of um, caretaking environments that I mentioned before. These are children who, for one reason or another, uh, don't have the advantages of a being exposed to a rich language in those early years of life, may not be read to because the parents haven't had that experience of school, may not have the opportunities to interact with other children, lots of things like that. So one thing that we could do nationally is to have one and preferably two years of free preschool and then create some incentives for parents to send their children to preschool. And then, if I, sorry, if I can following on from that, is to understand that um, uh, childcare, quote-unquote, or early learning is not just child mining. We have a very strong cultural view still that childcare isn't important and therefore you don't need to invest in quality and education and so on, um, that it's just child mining. And that's so wrong that quality does matter. The qualifications of the people looking after young children is terribly important. Issues like um, uh, group size and room size, etc., are important. Quality does matter, and they can really make a difference, particularly, as I said before, for children with disadvantaged environments. And yet we're still having, we've been used to be still having this debate and these arguments about uh, access and affordability. You know, we should be way past that now. Yeah, look, I think you're right, and I think, um, and... Sort of turning the spotlight on the sector itself, I think one of the things we have to be really honest about and one of the things I've struggled with is as a sector, I think we've got a long way to go in the uh, the, ma- the matureness, which probably isn't a word, but the maturity and the, the professionalism or advocacy. It's a very divided sector from sort of the, you know, the government-funded you know, preschool sector to the uh, you know, long daycare, early learning sector, um, with particularly with the market-based model we have where the, the advocacy isn't necessarily around best interests of children but around um, ensuring a profitable and uh, business I think it's it's a huge issue we face that we're not we, we don't have a unified message and we're not all on the same page and I think um, that's one of the big challenges what and what would your sort of advice be to to um, people who listen to the show I think particularly enjoy the, the advocacy stuff we talk about because I think it's not it's not a big enough topic in the sector it's not talked about enough what, what's your sort of recommendation to educators teachers you know sort of service leaders um, hopefully listening to this you know in terms of their what, what, what do you think they need to do to, to get that message out there more 
Well, can I just pick up the theme of um, the fragmentation and not being yeah. on the same page? Because that's something that uh, we're concerned about. You know, we're part of a hospital, we're part of a, um, a children's health research, research institute, and I would agree with you, without being too critical, critical about early childhood colleagues, that there are, are so many different agendas around in the childcare area, within childcare itself and family daycare, etc. But I would broaden that and to say, if you look at the advocates for young children and families more generally, they're even more fragmented. So if you think of, I was going to use the car lobby, but, <laughs> but if you look at industry or yeah. the oil the oil lobby or they go to Canberra and largely speak with a single voice. You know, they've got their organisations, they've got their advocates. When they leave a minister's office, the minister and his or her advisors and the senior public servants are, uh, are clear as to what this segment of industry want. They want X, they want Y, etc. And then they make a decision based on whether they think it's a good idea or a poor idea. When we go to Canberra, some of us talk about um, early learning. Some of us talk about family childcare. Some of us talk about child abuse. Some of us talk about family functioning, single parents, family violence. There are so many different areas. Um, and it's no wonder uh, that one of the contributors to my way of thinking that we haven't been all that successful in moving as quickly as we can is that governments, we don't give governments a very clear idea of what's at stake and what the solution is. So it's not surprising that um, governments end up just doing nothing because they're concerned if they do X, they'll offend Y, or if they do this, somebody else will uh, be upset. So wouldn't it be good, for example, if we could all go to Canberra, whatever our particular interest is, Mm -hmm. and start off with the same couple of paragraphs around why uh, we should be interested in the development of young children. Here's the brain development. Here's what happens in the first five years of life. So we speak, uh, we're on exactly the same page for the first couple of minutes, the first few paragraphs. Then we venture off and talk about whatever our particular interest is. And we do have a common story about early childhood. We worked a number of years ago with the Frameworks Institute, who are, are an American non-profit, who work with agencies and institutions in America around common social problems like climate change, refugees, early childhood, mental health, etc. So we brought them out a number of years ago. We put together a consortium of a whole lot of players and um, they actually did give us a core story. They did give us some messages and some metaphors to use. So we have a pretty good idea of the sort of language that would resonate with the Australian public. Imagine if we all signed up to the extent possible and used similar language. I think that would go a long way. So advocacy would all be focused, would all be targeted, would all be on the same page instead of doing our own individual things. That would be very powerful um, advance uh, to my way of thinking. But getting back to your question about what we would say to early educators and the people that will be listening to this, I, I think we really do need a broader lens um, on early childhood. So early education should not just be early education because there are so many other things that impact on a child's development. Yes, early education is terribly important. As I said before, the quality um, of early childhood, the quality of childcare, the quality of family daycare, the quality of preschool, very, very important. But we can't just have a narrow focus on that because the health of a child contributes. 
um, the family factors contribute, the community in which he, she grows up contributes. And so what's interesting internationally is that uh, the early childhood agencies more universally, like UNICEF, are now embracing strong links with health agencies because they're realising that in the first three years of life, it's the health people that these families are making contact with. So the opportunities for early identification, early intervention, early referral um, are very, very strong. We don't have to wait until these children turn three or four or five and start early childhood, start kindergarten or start school. So we're looking to develop these strong partnerships between uh, early educational professionals and community nurses and GPs and paediatricians. Um, it's got to be a broader lens if we're going to make a sustained difference to early childhood development. Yeah, that's a, that's a great bit of advice. And um, I think uh, I think that becomes a lot easier these days as well. So you look at, um, even just to look at the, the where you work at the, um, at the Centre for Community Child Health, there's so many online resources and I think it's a lot easier to engage with those concepts now than maybe it was even even 10 years ago. Um, so it's a lot, yeah, that, that, that's a good sort of impetus to put on yourself, so I think. Yeah, and it, well, it's easy for people like myself because the Centre for Community Child Health is multidisciplinary. So, you know, my work colleagues come from a whole variety of them. So, which it's is natural. It, it's natural. It's natural. It's probably harder for people engaged in the community, for those people that work in uh, early childhood centres or the directors of those. But one of the things that we encourage these institutions or agencies to do is to reach out beyond the four walls of their childcare centre or their kindergarten or their, their child development centre and actually map, go to a little bit of trouble, you know, it takes a couple of hours probably, Map their surroundings, you know, and what we've found is that it's surprising um, how little contact is often made between those various agencies in the community, all of whom are in the service of young children and, and their families. So, and those relationships, those bridges are very, very important. So we'd encourage all of the early childhood people listening or anybody running an agency in the community, take a little bit of time and map the resources in uh, in the area, in the geographic area of your service, and then reach out to them in some way. That's a great, 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 great action people could take. Um, so we might, I've probably got one more final question for you, uh, Professor Overclayton. It's, e it's either going to be a really easy one that you've already got nailed or, or quite a tricky one. I would struggle with this one. But uh, we, 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 I've asked this question of a few different people we've spoken to on the show, which is, if you could just change one thing for children in Australia, so if you get to limit yourself to just one change you could make um, for all the children in Australia, what would it be? Well, that's certainly not an easy question. <laughs> there, there are no easy questions in every childhood. No. Um, that's a challenging question to ask. If I had a magic wand, I think <laughs> I would change our culture. I would... Um, uh, value young children more. It, it's so interesting that this is a sort of personal observation, and I don't, you know, I don't really have evidence. It's very, very subjective. Subjective. I don't mean to offend anybody when I say this, but if you look at the Anglo countries—England, uh, Australia, America, Canada, etc.—I'm not sure we celebrate children enough. I think we tolerate them. Um, 
But there's this sort of old-fashioned thing of children should know their place and children should be seen but not heard, etc. And there are certainly other cultures in the world, I'm thinking of the Mediterranean countries in particular, who really celebrate children. You know, they love children. Um, and you go to some of these countries, uh, you know, Greece, Turkey, uh, Israel, Italy, and uh, there are families in the streets, you know, in the evenings. Um, there are the sidewalks in the village squares are teeming with families and children. It's a real sort of strong family unit. And children are very much part of that. I think in the Anglo countries, we tend to get a babysitter. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we don't let the kids, and this is an overgeneralization, of course, we don't want the children to sort of spoil the time that adults have. So if I change one little thing, I'd sort of change that culture so we could uh, understand uh, how important children are, uh, to celebrate them, to get into that world of magic that they have. Now, that's sort of ideal fantasy stuff, I know, but I think that would go a long way to understanding the importance of early childhood policy, the importance of increased investment in, the, in those early years, because you know all parents want to do the right thing by their kids. All parents do their very best. The reality is that some parents, for one reason or another, uh, can't do that, uh, are distracted in various ways. So we really need to support them in doing the best job that they can, in putting supports around them. So those families, those parents that are struggling for one reason or another, let's support them to do a better job that they're currently doing. And then the agencies and the services and the communities in which they live, let's make sure they're the highest quality we possibly can. Because the evidence is pretty clear that if we invest in those early years in family support, in increased services, we will make a difference long term to the country. I think that, that uh, that's a really good answer. I think you've actually hit the nail on the head, and it reminds me for anyone interested in that sort of um, view of where children are in society. There's a fantastic book called um, "Children of the Lucky Country," which is subtitled um, "How Australian Society." has turned its back on children and why children matter. And it was written in about uh, in the last, it, uh, the early 2000s, I think, and it's seared into my brain. It talks about exactly those kind of things, that the children used to be very visible and, and, and had a space in in public spaces in Australia, and that's gradually just um, gone away and away and away to where they're, you know, they can they can go to playgrounds or they can go to shopping centres, and there's this removal of children from civic spaces, um, which has resulted in a correlating lack of um, understanding the importance of children and the importance of issues that affect children. So for anyone interested, it's really it, 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 I still think about that every every week or so that we yeah that the, the culture of how we think about young children is something that really needs to change. Which unfortunately that changes slowly. Um, Thank you very much for taking time out to speak with us today, Professor Oberclade. We really appreciate it. If people want to find out more about you or the the the, um, the centre, where can they where can they find you online? Um, if they Google the Centre for Community Child Health, um, there's a good website. There's lots of information there, and then they can link to some of our programs, like Raising Children, like Let's Read, etc. Fantastic, Professor Oberclade. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much.
Thanks again to Professor Frank Overclay for joining me for that chat. We really appreciate his time. Um, he's a, a fantastic advocate for, for young children and their families and, and early childhood development. And um, if you haven't uh, checked out his work um, yet, um, we'll include links to his uh, to his work and his, his work, particularly the Royal Melbourne Children's Hospital and the Centre for Community Child Health. So thank you again. Professor Oberclay, but we will move on now to our recommendations for the week. And do you want to kick us off, Leanne? What have you got for us? Oh, my one comes from uh, the UK. And I have included this really just as a, I suppose, a commentary around how difficult it is to unpack the sort of um, media and information that we get around public funding and policy. And so this one is talking about 370 children's services um, shutting in the UK since 2010. And all of the rhetoric around that is that, um, you know, the, the services are shutting and Sure Start has been part of a, an incredible policy um, landscape in the UK that has really made improvements. And so there are these really great reforms. But then the government is saying, well, no, no, it's they're not really shutting. They're just merging. Some <laughs> of those areas are merging and they're still responsible for um, they're still responsible for those outcomes for the children. And so that's very important. And there are consultations coming, but we haven't quite decided how we're going to do those. <laughs> so they've been scheduled for a while. And then when it really gets down to it, and, and the other thing they say is that there's £60 million that are, is going to be spent this year. So everybody would be going, oh, no, this is terribly confusing. But in the end, it comes down to the fact that there's 47% less expenditure in real terms than in 2010. And I suppose I'm just sort of presenting it as a bit of a, a case study of how there's so many different bits of information around around these sorts of issues our three billion down to 1.5 billion and so on that it's really you know you really need to look a lot deeper at these sorts of reports to find out yes indeed it's always been a precarious policy position and now it's getting worse oh, okay and wasn't yep. there a big big fuss about they were they made a big fuss the the conservative government there about all the funding they were injecting into the sector so this would be you know uh, early childhood education for two-year-olds and yet the the actual investment has gone down. It just, it, it's, yeah. The, I don't yeah, know why. And it was a policy, well, it's something that we've even talked about on, on here where we, you know, that we admire. But I guess yeah. there's always, uh, someone once said that governments um, make changes by stealth. And <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it might have been Pam Carr, actually. And um, and I think, you know, when I heard that, I, I don't know that I always fully understood that, but I have understood that definitely in the last 10 years. It, it really is. You know, the governments do make these changes and you just don't even know they're happening. And then suddenly all of the great reforms are wound back or, so or undermined. Yeah. Mm, disappointing. Um, mm. Lisa, what are you bringing us this week? Look, I'm bringing something that I think will be kind of um, a bit contentious in the sector. Mm. Um, Are we about to lose a bunch of listeners? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, obviously. (laughs) I've seen a lot of stuff on Facebook in recent days about the role of men in the sector. Um, You know, people like you, Liam, who have got the male dangly bits but can also somehow manage to care for children. (laughs) 
And a lot of the things that I've seen have raised my hackles big time because they're coming from a position of won't somebody think about the poor men in the sector? How are women being, you know, sexist towards the men? How are women keeping men out of the sector? And what are we doing wrong? Um, you know, how are we making them feel guilty about changing nappies, etc.? So my recommendation is some is an article that's absolutely not like that, and it's written by a man. I don't know who he is because he only has his first name on his blog, but David from Melbourne, you're my personal hero this week. He's written a blog post and he's called it Everything I'm Not Made Me Everything I Am. And just to explain his heading, he reckons that yeah, he's not one of those blokey blokes. You know, he's not handy. He's not into sports. I'm not much of what men are supposed to be, he says. And everything I'm not made me everything I am. And so he's all those things that enables him to be caring and, you know, to look after children and to be good at looking after children. So I really like that title and the way he explains it. But... I'll read you just two of his comments that just really struck with me. In terms of the vast array of problems facing early learning, I honestly consider increasing the amount of men in the field to be a very low priority. I barely consider it to be on the list at all, really. And that's kind of pretty much how I think about it. He also says, I've also seen being a man absolutely work in my advantage. And all every time I hear men complaining about how badly they're done by in the sector, I just want to say, think about why you're in the sector. What makes it appealing to work in a sector that's 97% women? Is it perhaps that, you know, you have some advantages in career paths and in other things by being a man working in the sector. Anyway, I'm not going to go into that much more than that, but I would really recommend this article to everyone and maybe people could start following David's blog because I think it, it's an interesting blog. It's called, He calls it childcare professional. <laughs> it's a, a snappy name. And yeah, a, that is a great read. I really enjoyed that read. Yeah, I I really recommend it as well. Yeah, that's all you can say, Lou. I know you're waiting for me to say something. One of these blokes. If anyone remembers back to our Q and A episode last year, I I think I said how much I really dislike even talking about this topic. And I think when you you sent me this article during the week, Lisa, and I said he's saying the things that I've struggled to articulate. I'd be hats off to David. Um, I, I guess it's tricky because I know people who, you know, work in this field, which is, you know, with the specific goal of, you know, of raising the the um, the uh, the perception of men and, and increasing the numbers of men, and they're you know they're great people doing the work they think is appropriate. I I I side with with David on this. I because I think and I, I I think I tried to articulate this in the Q and A, and I'll try again this year really quickly because I I really don't like talking about it. Is that the problem isn't the problem. So that the the problem of low men in the sector isn't isn't the problem. It's a symptom of another problem, which is that the work is viewed as women's work and women's work is devalued, and and that's it to me. So the 
focusing Absolutely. on yeah focusing on the symptom which i get and and i've said before my my personal experience has been really positive i haven't had bad experiences i absolutely accept people have but i think you have to look at you you can't you cannot ignore context with these things you cannot ignore where it's sitting and the other thing for me is the only thing i would add to david's piece is is uh is that it's actually? I, I actually genuinely think it's actually good for men to be in this position. I don't think I would be the advocate and the the follower of social justice I am now if I didn't have this tiny, tiny little window into what it was like to be in a minority position and to have to think about the way I act and behave because I am, you know, straight white uh, guy. In every other sphere of my life, I have complete control and privilege. It's actually good to have a tiny window into how some of these other groups feel because I think it makes you a better, a better advocate. And and I, and I will say this because I think it's really and and it's really important to say David is actually is absolutely right. There are benefits to being a man sector, and in my my view, they far outweigh the the negatives. I and I will say this because I think it needs to be said by people in these positions. You know, I was a centre director at twenty two or something ridiculous. I was an area manager at twenty five, twenty six. It, you know, I, I have a fairly senior position in the organisation I'm in now, and I'm, you know, I'm only 30. There are women working in the sector, far more competent and clever at this stuff than me, who are who are not. That is, in, in, at least in in part, due to due to my gender. And it's it's stupid things like just even being remembered, like even just walking into a room saying something. I'm I'm more likely to be remembered. I'm the only, I'm the only guy there. And it's a bit of a novelty. And we, to be listened to. Yes, and to be absolutely. Listened to as well. Yeah. So that that is my my view on that. I, and I yeah I think go David. And I think the more men who are willing to be clear about that and yes support each other and yes you, you know it's not okay for anyone to be discriminated against for any reason. But it I I do worry as I think you do, Lisa, that it's it's divorced from context and you can't you can't do that. Yeah, mean? and I, I, the two final things I want to say is I'm absolutely would love if there was a better gender balance in the sector. I believe that children need access to both males and females, and you know, as educators, and I would love to see more men working in the sector. But until wages and hmm. status and standing are improved, it's not going to happen. And the other thing I'd say is, I if you're a woman in the sector do is supporting the men who are saying that they're being discriminated against in the sector is that should that be your most important issue i'll just leave that one at that yeah it's a good question my answer would be no bit of interesting to see what other people think yeah (laughs) so would mine (laughs) Um, all right, moving on from that. Uh, I don't, look, I don't think that's too contentious, Leisha. I think people will have different views, but I think I would always encourage people to take a step back and think of the context. Um, that's it for the main part of our show tonight. We will, we'll, uh, we'd like to thank everyone, as usual, for sticking with Liam, us. you didn't do your yeah, recommendation. Oh, see, this is useless men who've got no idea what they're doing and they're put in charge of things. Why does this happen? <laughs> so that we have to remind you. <laughs> Liam. You need to give your recommendation now. Not um, just talk about not just not just 
You know what, Liam? You don't need to just, like, provide a commentary on our stuff. You've got to do your own thing. (laughs) (laughs) I was just mansplaining your recommendations for you, just putting them in a slightly better (laughs) perfect. Hang on, Leanne. I don't know whether we can actually say that when he's the one that does the technical stuff of making this podcast (laughs) go out to the world. I know, I know. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> we, do, um, we do value everyone's contribution here. <laughs> but that's all right. No, I think you've done the right thing. Instead of you know doing the grunt work yourself, you've helped you very smartly. You've hired some young bloke to do it for you. I think that's that's, that's brilliant work. Good no, we're working in a we're working in a collective, building your skills and talents. Um, <laughs> Because we are working in, you know, we, we allow these things to happen. So we've allowed you to do that. And you will thank us for it. I, I thank you for the opportunity, both of you. Now, my one's pretty quick. This is only literally just uh, hit the hit the internet uh, just as we go to record. So we're recording this on Wednesday night for anyone who's uh, who's, who's keeping track at home. Um we're currently in the, so the, the the omnibus bill, which includes the early childhood reforms, is currently before a Senate inquiry. If we think back to October, November last year, actually maybe in September, there was an, there was a, a, another inquiry being conducted into the reforms, and the government has only just responded to that inquiry. So that document is now available. We'll include a link to it. Um, it has literally come out, so I think we've only had a very surface look at it, but it, it sort of says all the same things we've heard before, which is, no, it's actually good, and you bet that, and don't worry about all the other stuff. The, the Probably the key things to think about there is they... They are saying they are in consultations with the sector um, regarding increasing the current um, the uh, 24-hour um, to 30-hour um, access right under the activity test. Um, and there's some interesting stuff around the sessions of care, which I know we've talked about before, which is they're basically trying to force the sector to, instead of offering full-day um in enrolments is to is to offer them in six hour blocks, which will be the way that you know a, a vulnerable child will get their current you know will get the twelve hours they're entitled to under the new package, and they're basically saying that that can and should happen. Whereas I think that um, a huge, surely majority of the sector would have to say that's actually incredibly problematic and will lead to a significant uh, casualization and part timeization, if that's a phrase, which is not of the early childhood sector. Um, but we'll include a link to it, you know, have, and it's worth sort of having a look to see where the government stands on some of this stuff. Hmm. Yes. For sure. An but, interesting read. It's not too long either, which is um, handy. That's all right. Twelve. I can handle 12 just, pages or whatever just doesn't it is, say the right. just doesn't say the right thing, unfortunately. No, there's nothing in there that's too surprising. Um so we thanks again for everyone for, for listening to us for another week. Um, we've got a. We'd, I'd like to um, remind everyone if you're if you're in the mood to support us, um, you can now do that on the, the Patreon website. So if you head to patreon.com forward slash early edu show. Um, and Liam, people are actually doing I that. I know it's so strange. Are they Look, mad? I think well, I, every time one comes in, I want to tell them you must have better things to spend your money on. But you're all being um, very lovely and nice, so we are. We, we we're doing very well. And we have some plans afoot for um, updating our website and 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 getting some nicer equipment and stuff as well to make it a better listening experience for the listeners at home. Um, 
but you can we we very 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 much value anyone who's supporting us on there if you can't which we fully understand um the next best thing you could do for us would be give us a rating and review on the itunes store if you have an apple device um that really helps um bump us up on the rankings and means other early childhood professionals and interested parties can can find us and and listen to us as well um i'm going to do a bit of a personal one here the current inquiry into the omnibus bill will be holding public hearings uh, at parliament house on uh, March the 9th, I am in. I am planning to attend unless anything uh, sort of comes up. So, if you're in Canberra and or are based in Canberra or visiting on that day, and you're planning to attend as well, um, give me a wave and say hello because I, I might even try and do a little bit of a recording or something there for it'd be interesting. We to need people t-shirts, saying, Liam. Oh, that's a yeah, good idea. We have an early education show t-shirt. That's actually a very good yeah. idea. Hmm. All right. Yeah. Well. <gasps> If we've organised it by that time, I might be wearing some sort of early education shirt at the time. I think I'll, I think I'm technically going in my work capacity, but I don't think they'll mind. That'll be all right. Well, is isn't there something about Parliament House and t-shirts? Uh, I, in New South Wales, you can't. I'm not sure about. Um, yeah, no, because we. I remember we struggled to get those ones uh, into New South Wales Parliament House when we when we were having some sort of massive cake stall out the front of <laughs> If you had cakes, I'd be letting you straight in. I'd go, what are you wearing? It um, was a great cake stall. <laughs> so well, we'll do another reminder of that for our next episode as well. But um, yes, we'd love to, to catch up and hear your thoughts if you're attending that hearing on March the 9th, Thursday, March the 9th. Um, but uh, as usual, you can track us down on the interwebs in a variety of ways, you can find us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter. Still no Instagram page, people. Leanne and Lisa haven't uh, picked up the ball on that. I'll keep getting onto them. Uh, you can what, also. What would, we, what would we take photos of? I don't know. Well, our, our, our t-shirts <laughs> we're apparently making. <laughs> All right, that's my job this week. I'm setting up an Instagram account. For the early education show. Um, you can also email us earlyeduShow at gmail uh, you can also find us all individually on Twitter. I'm at Liam McNicholas. I'm Lisa J. Bryant. I'm Leanne M. Gibbs 3. Yay, go Leanne. <laughs> <laughs> that performance improvement plan's working, isn't it? You did fantastic. We knew you could do really well. So until next week, we will be. Uh, we hope you have a, a great week and all the work you're doing in early childhood. Until then, it's bye from me. And from me. And from me. 